Hello and welcome to the Achieve Your Goals podcast, the show that empowers you to wake up to your full potential and achieve your biggest goals and dreams. I am your host, Hal Elrod, and I invite you to join us each week as we share actionable strategies to take your life to the next level, as well as interview world-class experts and entrepreneurs who have achieved extraordinary goals themselves, and we ask them to give you a peek behind the curtain and teach you exactly what you need to do to do the same. Ready? Here we go. Christopher, we're here live with the entire Miracle Morning universe. By now, they're in 64 countries and four planets, as far as I know. Four planets? Which planets, John? Well, we're going to go with Neptune, Pluto, Jupiter, and of course, Uranus. (laughs) I think at at least I have a lot of uh, fans and friends. uh, Is it in Uranus or on Uranus? (laughs) It could be all around Uranus. Isn't it possible that didn't Pluto get like uninvited from being a planet? Wasn't there one of these planets that got, you know, deplanetized? It was probably a word for that. No, they were just niching down. They were just trying to differentiate themselves from all the other planets. <laughs> yeah, that was the most seamless segue in the most unexpected place to niche niche down. Hey buddy, I'm so glad to bring It's great to see you, John. Yeah, man. It's really good to see you. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. I notice as I'm watching you that uh I noticed you've added a, a fluorescent cactus to your setting there in the live studio. What's, what, there's, is there a story behind? Is there a name to that cactus? What's the deal? There is. Actually, it hasn't been named. Maybe you and I could name it, but there is a story. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. love to understand that. So, as you know, uh, I'm the crazy uncle to many children, yeah. uh, like to yours, by way My of example. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the unwanted crazy uncle. Yeah, And uh, of course, if you're going to be a good crazy uncle, just like anything in life, it's good to have a role model. So I, ha- I have a crazy uncle, uh, my uncle John. And um, uh, when I saw him last, he wanted to give me this very special gift in celebration of, you know, Legends of Losers. And he loves the podcast and the new book. And anyway, he wanted to give me a gift. So he gave me this fluorescent podcast, uh, this fluorescent uh, um, cactus. Naturally. And so uh, I, I put it in the studio. And so my, this is my crazy Uncle John's podcast. Um, podcast. What's wrong with my brain? Uh, cactus. I'm podcasting on the brain, clearly. Um, but we, we don't have a name for crazy, uh, crazy Uncle John's um, cactus. All right. Well, let's give it a little time and see what happens. Yeah. And by the way, I say crazy uncle with tremendous love and, and admiration, right? So what's, uh, where do we want to start? Where do we want to start, man? What's... Uh... Is it another sunny day in Santa Cruz? I've been to your studio, by the way, and, and it's, it is the, we were talking about this a minute ago, you know, standing on the balcony, like seven feet away from where you're seated is one of the most, in my opinion, inspiring, breathtaking views. It's like a feast for the soul. You're surrounded by these huge, huge, what are these trees called? What are they called? Monterey. Uh, so we have, Eucalyptus. Yeah, Monterey Cypress. We have yeah. Monterey Cypress, and we have all the way from uh, the land down under. We have uh, a eucalyptus grove that kind of is around us. We have lots of palm trees, and you know, of course, we're uh, two blocks from the beach here. And um, yeah, it's it's quite the place. I, you you put up on your Facebook page regularly just little streams of you just like standing in the water. Is that uh, you? You spend time there every day. I, I tried it. My wife and I have a goal of, uh, and this sounds insanely stupid because we literally live two blocks from the beach. 
but uh, we have a goal of getting to the beach every day. And, uh, you know, we live in, we're lucky enough to live in one of those places where people vacation. And um, I, I used to, years ago, I ran, I'm not, I'm not you, but, but now what I like to do, I don't go on super long runs, but um, two to four times a week, I like to get to the ocean and, and run along the ocean. And so, yeah, I've started live streaming um, little parts of my runs uh, uh, while I'm out at the beach going for a run. Cause uh, you know, my, my friends in, uh, in Buffalo and in, um, you know, Idaho and Utah and Sheetaho and all those places get a kick out of uh, a bit of a beach view from every time, every once in a while. Yeah. You, uh, you inspired, you inspired me to think about connecting with nature. It's, it's something I already valued, but you know, when I, when I came out and visited you, I've been there a few times and you took Scotty and I out to the beach and took us through an MMA workout, which, uh, scared the crap out of me, by the way. It, you know, <laughs> it, it really pulled the least manly part out of me, but just being in the sand, it, you know, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and the more I run on the beach, the bigger my calves get and the stronger my feet get. <laughs> I, 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 you know, you've got a, that surfboard next to you. I just bought a paddleboard and uh, we have a lake behind our house and we've lived there for three years. And it took me three years of thinking about paddleboarding on the lake. And then one day I, I spent two and a half seconds pushing a button on Amazon to finally get the paddleboard to show up at my house. This was like two months ago. So I have a new like routine. It's, it's, uh, I either start every day, literally before the sun comes up or I finish every day as the sun is setting paddleboarding on that lake. And it's, uh, it's become one of my new kind of favorite things to do. I've got the, and I'll have one of the kids will lay down on the, if I go at the end of the day, the sunset, uh, the kids will, they lay down, you know, on the front of the board and we just do a lap around this lake. And it's, uh, it's been a great addition to my life. Right. And, you know, I've learned something in the last maybe 15 or so years, which is, and this may be a duh to most people. I don't know. Maybe I'm just slow, but the place you live, like the physical environment you're in makes a gigantic difference. And for some reason, that idea is connected to an idea. Years ago when I was living in Toronto, you know, I used to, and I still do, mostly I listen to podcasts now when I run or, or music, but back in those days, I listened to, you know, motivational tapes, you know, Zig Ziglar in the car and, but running, I used to listen to these tapes. I remember listening to this, um, Deepak Chopra tape and, you know, the, the seven laws about how to be spiritually awesome or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, uh, one of the things he says is you have to spend an hour a day in nature. And at the time, you know, I had a gnarly commute and I was, you know, hustling super hard in my career. And I thought Deepak, or as have you heard Ali Wong, the comedian? She, she calls him yeah. Deepak Oprah. You know, she packages them <laughs> together in one person. So it's well anyway, so Deepak Oprah, like, how are you going to have time to spend an hour a day in nature? Like, who's got time? And to your point, now I feel incredibly lucky because uh, I spend a lot more than an hour a day in nature. And um, whether it's uh, with the ocean itself or just to your point, enjo enjoying the trees or we have a beautiful garden and get to play with my hens and all of that. Yeah. You know, you and I have that in common. I, I didn't realize... We actually had a similar, it's interesting that we've known each other. We've spent time together. We've played together, worked together. And I, and I didn't realize your, your story is eerily similar to mine because I too, uh, had a period of time in my life. This was 12 years ago where I was listening to Deepak Chopra's, uh, uh, it was called like something like synchronicity, the power of synchronicity, um, where he had all these meditations. And I used to listen to those while trail running. 
and, and that planted a seed in me. I went through the same journey, but you know, years after you did for me, it was like three years ago. We actually, my wife and I got just fed up uh, thinking about the things we valued that we were living kind of like out of integrity with. Mm-hmm. So in a matter of days, we put one house on the market and bought another house within a couple days, sold the first house, moved our whole family across town so that we could back up to 300 acres of this natural preserve so we could be in nature every day. And you know, I know there's more to it than I actually understand. But but knowing that there's something to it and experiencing it, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how I would operate if my feet or and or my hands did not touch the earth every day. Yeah, it's it's like look, I didn't grow up gardening. I grew up in a in an apartment that was slightly larger than a postage stamp um, in a much more urban area. But you know, we have a wonderful garden, and yeah, there's something about being in the garden. There's something about getting your hands dirty. There's something about getting your feet dirty. There's something about chasing chickens around. <laughs> uh, Where are the girls? I thought maybe you'd have one on your lap today. I, I was cuddling with Beatrice earlier, but uh, they just got out. So she's um, she's off running around right now. All right, all right. But we did get, hey, we did get, we just got three new baby girls, uh, three, three-week-old chicks. So what is that, 12 now? Uh, we were down to five cause we unfortunately just lost our beloved Gladys. Ah. So we went from six to five. That was, it, you know, the thing about animals and you know, this, you're an animal guy, you're a pet guy. Um, you know, the one thing is you, we all know one day that pet's going to break your heart. Right. Yeah. So unfortunately we lost Gladys too soon and we were thinking about getting three new hens next, um, next year. And we just thought we were so heartbroken over Gladys so we got three new hens, um, or little baby, little babies right now. Uh, so awesome. now, uh, we'll be, we'll be at eight now once we get them integrated with the flock. They're, in, they're living in the house right now. Nice. I was going to ask, what does that mean to integrate them with the flock? Is that a whole process? What does that look like? Yeah, because the pecking order is this really very real thing. And so you got to sort of integrate them slowly, you know, otherwise there's going to be too much fighting. Huh. Hey, what's you know, it's kind of like when immigrants show up in your country. You sort of got to be careful about how that works or some people are going to get angry. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, speaking of that, what's new in your world today? I want to I ask you about and I want to talk about, I want to hear about niche down. And, and part of how I want to bring this into the conversation is I want to share with our Miracle Morning community and with you, Christopher, the The day that I met you, uh, and I don't think you actually know this, the first day I laid eyes on you, it was actually at a, um, I think it was at a One Life Fully Lived conference. I think it was in Sacramento. And I think it was, I say think because these details are all blurry. I think it was October, maybe two years ago. And I remember walking into the room about two or three minutes after you had started your keynote speech. And at the time you were talking about Play Bigger. And you're talking about companies that had uh, become legendary by designing a category. And I don't know if I'd ever shared this experience with you, but that was the first moment I knew, uh, right? I guess I'd heard of you, but, you know, kind of saw you directly talking about this idea of category design. And I'll never forget standing there in the back of the room thinking, oh my gosh, he's describing something that I've, I've had this like rare, fortunate privilege to work for a company because I had been at the Vitamix Corporation where I got to witness a company 
that actually created a category. They created the whole category of high-end premium blending, right? Like before Vitamix was around, the idea of a blender, it was like a $50, $100 thing. And they came along and said, well, no, there's this thing called premium blending and we're going to charge $600 for it. So I remember the first time I met you, hearing you talk about this stuff, thinking, man, I got to live uh, inside the walls of a company during a time when they grew freaking exponentially because they did the exact thing that you were teaching. And, yeah. and now a couple of years later, you know, you're, uh, why niche down? Why, where, why did you decide you wanted to bring in a message, maybe to a new audience or a different message to the same audience? What's the deal there? So the big thing was, so the first book play bigger came out, um, two years ago. And the good people at Forbes were kind enough to say that Play Bigger is the new how-to guide for uh, creating the next Google, Facebook, or Amazon, which, you know, was just an incredibly a wonderful compliment. Um, and the number one question I've gotten, John, in the two years since Play Bigger came out is, hey, this is all really interesting, this notion of designing and dominating your own niche, your own category, and all that. Um, and the examples are great, blah, blah. But uh, Play Bigger was really all about what you could think of as biggie entrepreneurs. You know, you and I write uh, some awesome, tastic algorithm. We show up on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. We raise $200 million from a bunch of big ding-dong VCs. We try to build a giant new category. We try to build a company worth billions of dollars, go public, and, um, you know, ultimately buy Hawaiian islands and stuff. And so that's cool. And I've spent most of my life there. But the truth is, I started off my life as, as what you could think of as a Smalley entrepreneur. And so the number one question I got in the two years since Play Bigger came out is, this is great, but how does it apply to me in my career if I'm not going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, right? So Niche Down is all about how Smalley entrepreneurs can take the concepts of how you design a category and apply them to your personal life. You know, so if you look at Every legendary individual we admire, artists, musicians, uh, scientists, entrepreneurs, uh, musicians, I don't know if I said musicians, whoever, even politicians, if there's any that we still admire, they all share something in common, which is they are unique. They were different. They took new ground. And as a result, they became known for a niche that they own. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of BS in the world lately about this, this, I think it's one of the most damaging ideas in business called personal branding mm. and it's a disaster and so anyway people started to ask you know how's this different from personal branding and how do i apply this notion of category design to my own life or my my smally entrepreneur business my youpreneur business my solopreneur business and so that's what niche down is all about it's it's for those of us who are smally entrepreneurs those of us who are on our own or those of us who just want to really effectively position ourselves for success in our careers to answer the question how do I become known for a niche that I can own? And, and that's what um, Niche Down is all about. Yeah. You know, I want to, uh, I, I love some of the ideas that you have taught me about this, the whole concept of being different and how important it is. And uh, I'd love for you to talk about some of those, but I actually want to reverse a little bit. And I'd love for you to share, I, you know, one of the things I, I found really interesting the first time I met you is how passionate you are not just about what you're doing and what you're teaching, but about what I've heard you call just a crisis in general it, it, around entrepreneurship. Can you talk about this? Because I feel like uh, having this kind of historical context uh, around this topic, 
I don't know for others, maybe they don't care for me. I found it really interesting just to understand kind of the state of entrepreneurship and that, you know, you had a passion about helping to solve this crisis. Anything you can say about that? Yeah. First of all, it's a crisis most people don't know is going on because if you consume most regular media, it's easy to get the impression, certainly the impression I had that everything's great. Everybody's an entrepreneur, hustle, 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 follow your passion. You know, two of the worst pieces of advice in history. Can we, uh, can we, can but, we come back to that, by the way? I, oh, I, I God, can't. I hate that stupidity. <laughs> oh, follow your passion. No, you dumbass. You might follow your passion right off a cliff. And hustle is the worst piece of advice ever. Anyway, we can talk about why. But it, it turns out, uh, and the first I saw of it, uh, two years ago, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article that said the crisis in American entrepreneurship. That was the headline. Mm. And I thought, John, what crisis? Everybody and their brother's an entrepreneur. And then I started to dig into it. And most recently, and by the way, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. The good people at the Brookings Institute just came out with their new report on entrepreneurship. If you go to their website, you can find it. It's, it's brilliant. Anyway, here's the facts. We are at what most people consider to be the worst time in American history for entrepreneurship. Most people believe the data shows that more companies die in our country every, every week than are founded. The uh, millennials, and I don't mean this in any, um, uh, you know, I don't mean to throw them under the bus because I, I don't mean it that way. There are structural problems that we can talk about, but millennials are on track to be the least entrepreneurial generation in history and the first American generation that are less well off than their parents. And America is absolutely, whether you believe the Wall Street Journal, whether you believe uh, MIT, whether you believe uh, Brookings, you look at these sources and they all point to the same thing, which is there is a crisis in American entrepreneurship. Startups are not happening. And then when you start to unpack the importance of small entrepreneurs and startups, you begin to realize, well, wait a minute, and I forget the exact numbers, but something like 60 plus percent of the patents that get um, uh, applied for in the U.S. are by companies with uh, 500 or less people and uh, the huge percentage of employees that work for those companies. Uh, virtually all the job creation is done there. It's not created by IBM and GE, not, not to be nasty to them, but the job creation comes from small entrepreneurs. And then in the latest Brookings report, uh, and I, I generally don't like to have political conversations in public because I don't, I don't think they're very helpful for the most part. But anyway, it turns out, particularly at the state level, our state governments in the United States have laws in place that favor big companies and uh, create a hostile environment for startups, particularly from a tax perspective. And so the bottom line is, uh, at a macro level, the success of the American economy is jeopardized because of a lack of entrepreneurship. It, there's, there's no question about that, and it is an effing crisis. And on a personal level, John, you know, I'm somebody that got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. I, there, was, there was no job for me you know, other than a manual labor job. Those are my options in life were, you know, shave guys balls for a living or start a company. Hold on, let me hold and on so, to that image in my, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's terrible. No, because my mom got me a job as an orderly, right? So I would come up to you and say, uh, hello, Mr. Berghoff, I'm here to shave you. And you say, oh, well, you know, I shaved. And I said, man, probably not where I'm going to shave you. Um, <laughs> and, and even then, I don't know that I was qualified to do that. I will tell you one thing. When you're shaving somebody's uh, nether region, you have their full attention, and they they very much want you to be successful. <laughs> These are lessons for life. <laughs> um, 
so anyway, all kidding aside, though, uh, like like for many entrepreneurs or, or young people with few options, um, nobody was going to bet on me. I had to bet on myself. And so entrepreneurship for me was not a way up in the world. It was a way out of a, you know, of a life of struggle. And, you know, I come from very modest beginnings, a very loving family. But, you know, we had to struggle. And so on a personal level, I get upset. I, I get angry. I get sad. Uh, and it may sound corny. But for me, I'm somebody for whom being an entrepreneur and working and building entrepreneurial companies and working in the entrepreneurial ecosystem of Silicon Valley for so many years, you know, has been a way for me to have an amazing life. Mm -hmm. And I want that opportunity for everybody who wants to seize that opportunity. To me, the American dream and the entrepreneurial dream are deeply, deeply interconnected. And when we have an environment that's hostile to startups and we have, we have people not embracing that, when we have an environment that's hostile towards small entrepreneurs, I want to try to do something about that. So a big motivation for me, and I, I know I can speak for Heather Clancy, who partnered with me on, on um, Niche Down, we wanted to provide a set of insights and inspiration that would make a difference for people in their careers, to be entrepreneurial in their careers, as well as for solopreneurs, youpreneurs, and, and other smally entrepreneurs to try to tilt the advantage to them. Because the irony about all of this, when we talk about why, if you like, now's the greatest time in history to be an entrepreneur. You know, you, uh, when you share your story, Christopher, I got to tell you this. I, I don't think I told you about this. Uh, three weeks ago, I know you, you're very familiar with the GoBundance guys. Uh, you're, you're one of the tribe. And uh, we, uh, we had 20 of these guys at a dinner. And there was something that happened during that dinner that, you know, when you tell your story about entrepreneurship being a way out, which, uh, by the way, I can relate to that. For me, it was almost a source of healing at a really challenging time for myself. Uh, and our mutual friend, Hal Elrod, and actually quite a few others you've had on your podcast, we were all beneficiaries of this crazy unexpected entrepreneurial environment selling Cutco kitchen knives that was like this magical place to learn about entrepreneurship for young people. But I, we were at a dinner with the GoBundance guys. This was... Uh, and there were 20 guys and we're having dinner. And one of the guys says, he says, Hey, if it would be okay, he said, I'd love to hear each guy's story at this table. And he says, by the way, before each of you share your story, he said, I'd like to know how many of you are like me. And then over half the 20 guys raised their hands. And it was an amazing dinner because as one guy at a time went around the table and shared where they had come from, what they had been through. What was, what was fascinating, Christopher, is every single guy at that table had this universal, deep personal relationship with the opportunities that they had found their way into as entrepreneurs. And it was amazing because, you know, your whole uh, brand of legends and losers, the common bond that these guys had that wasn't that clear to me until this moment was that the large majority of them had been, uh, by many societal definitions, big time losers in the environment that they grew up in. And yet, um, the way that they all found to get out was entrepreneurship. It, it was just, it was such a memorable moment for me to hear those stories. So, uh, and I think that's a lot of our stories, right? I mean, look, yeah. not everybody's a misfit. You know, I'm married to a, a wonderful woman and, and she's not a misfit. She, 
she fit in the world. She found, she found her place and, and she never felt disenfranchised and she found her talents and she built her life around them. And she's one of the most legendary people I've ever met, my wife, Carrie. And, and if you're that kind of a person, God bless you. Hallelujah. I'm not. I grew up on the island of misfit toys. I have felt like an alien for the vast majority of my life. I have, I don't fit in. Uh, I, I never colored in the lines. I have five diagnosed learning differences. I add them together and I have a name for them that I won't say in this environment because we try to not <laughs> swear, but there's a, there's a, there's a F word that goes, I, I took the F word and added dyslexia to the front of it to get a new word to combine all these things. Right. But there are many of us, <laughs> you know, we get taught in the world that, that the pathway to success is fitting in, that the pathway to success is, is being like other people, but maybe being a little bit better. We get taught that the, the trick in life is to, is to find your place in the world. Well, some of us don't fit in for some of us, there is no place in the world. And if you're one of those people who grew up on the Island of Misfit Toys and you are fundamentally different, Look, it can be really hard. You know, we quote, we quote Kermit the Frog in the new book. It's not easy being green. <laughs> but the truth is, it's the people who are different who make the biggest difference. That's the truth. Picasso was different. Sarah Blakely, founder of Spanx, different. Uh, the Ramones, you know, that's Joey Ramone on the, the bottom of the surfboard. Incredibly different, right? And so if you start to look at the people that you love and admire, uh, whether they're entrepreneurs or artists or whatever they are, the vast majority of them were unique. They broke or took new ground and they were different. And they, and they, they had, if you will, the courage to follow their different. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And for some of us, myself included, it's a very challenging thing. It, it, it's hard to feel like you're green in a world where very few other people are green. <laughs> To quote Kermit, you, uh, I, I'll, I'll never forget, and you just fix this if I'm misquoting you, but I'll never forget. It, it may have been the very first slide I saw when I saw you presenting at that One Life event two years ago. And I think it was a quote along the lines, Christopher, of the exponential value of being different compared to the incremental value of being better. And in, in, in the best, the best case study for this, I don't know if it made it into the book, but I've heard you talk about the scene from uh, Something About Mary, where, uh, you know, it's what I'm talking about when Ben Stiller picks up the hitchhiker. Yeah, we actually did, did put it in the book because it's, oh, for did. years I was, right, yeah, I, for years I've been trying to find a great example of, of this distinction between better and different, particularly in our careers and in our, in our work and our entrepreneur lives or whatever. And that, that, that scene probably does it better than, than any other. So tell the scene for us to take us through so the scene. Stiller, Ben Stiller is driving at night and he picks up this hitchhiker. Always a good move uh, at night. And the hitchhiker is like a wanted serial killer played by an absolutely pee your pants, funny comedian named Harlan Williams. And if you ever get a chance to see Harlan live, I highly, highly recommend it. I've seen him at least once, maybe twice. And he's, he's priceless. Anyway, they, they get to talking and, and Stiller sort of is asking about his life and sort of what his plan for making it in life is. And what Harlan says is, well, you know that, that infomercial eight minute abs, I'm going to do seven minute abs. <laughs> and he starts describing how he's going to just crush the eight minute abs people with the seven minute abs. 
And he gets done on this diatribe and Stiller looks at him and goes, oh, that's really interesting. Uh, what are you going to do when somebody comes out with five minute abs? <laughs> and, and he's so, annihilated. <laughs> and, and yeah, he starts convulsing. Like, oh, oh, I don't and most of us make an unquestioned, unexamined decision to compete by trying to be better. And, and, and a lot of our education teaches us this. You know, if you want to be a lawyer, you got to do better on the else that than most people to, to become a lawyer. And, you know, all these things, right? Whereas, where, they're, where we're playing a comparison game inside of an existing paradigm, if, if you'll allow me that. The legends don't do that. They say, F the paradigm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create my whole new world, right? The reason we know who Picasso is is because he designed a new niche of art called cubism, right? The reason we know who the Ramones are is because they are the category designers of, of a new niche of music called punk rock, right? And there's so many great examples. And there's so many great examples of, um, of entrepreneurs doing this. You ready for the, the, the newest one I heard of? Yeah. Yeah, this one's not even in the book. It's so new. So Carrie comes home last weekend and she was off at this, uh, I call it a junk fest. She was off at this artisan, you know, these things where they rent a whole bunch of open space and people sell antiques and stuff and whatever. Right. Yeah, you know, these the big an- the, yeah, the big antique bazaar or whatever, the bizarre bazaar. Anyway, she loves to go to this thing in the Bay area. It's a big deal once a month, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. So she goes to this thing and then she's telling me all about it and things she saw and whatever, whatever. And, um, she says, oh, and I had, I had one of my favorite lunches. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? She said, a sushi rito. And I said, a what? She said, a sushi rito. Don't you know sushi rito? And I said, no. I said, what's a sushi rito? And she said, well, it's a burrito made of sushi. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that, that sounds great. Of course, she's telling me this. At, you know that there's that time in the afternoon around 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, where some of us get real hungry. And I was like, well, did you bring me one? And she didn't. You know, but anyways, Sushi Rito is a great example of a niche down in that if you think about a restaurant, restaurants are arguably the small business that fails the most often. The statistics are terrifying. And if you and I were to open a restaurant, what most people do who are opening a restaurant is they say, okay, well, we really like food. We really like cooking. We really like all this stuff. So we're going to open a restaurant. We're going to call it, you know, John and Chris's restaurant or whatever we're going to call it. And the way we're going to compete, how we're going to be successful is, well, we're going to do two things. We're going to have awesome food because we think we make awesome, in this case, sushi. And we'll, maybe we'll, we'll have awesome service. You know, we'll have great wait staff and we'll have a beautiful restaurant. And, and then we'll open and we'll do what most restaurateurs do, which is pray. You know, the old build it and they will come model, which is absolute disaster, insanity, and great pathway to bankruptcy. So what do the Sushi Rito guys do? They don't do any of that. They're not competing on our sushis better than everyone else's. They invent a new category. They niche down. They say, we're going to take the concept of, you know, people want to eat on the go. So how do I eat sushi on the go? If you ever try to eat sushi on the go, you get those plastic containers and, you know, you spill the soy sauce all over your lap in the car and right. It's not safe. Not safe. So these guys take, I don't know what it's called. You know, that, that sushi paper they use that the rice, sort of, paper. rice paper, Soy rice paper. paper thi- yeah. yeah. That stuff, you know, it's kind of black color. And, and so they take that seaweed. rice paper, seaweed, maybe it's the seaweed. What do I know? It's anyway, whatever it's it is, something edible. It's, hopefully. It's, it's totally edible. Yeah. And they make a giant 
imagine a sushi roll that looks like a stuffed into a burrito and ta-da, it's the sushi rito. Well, they're hugely successful. There's seven or eight of these things. They're absolutely killing it. And they've created a brand new niche of sushi restaurant. And if you want to compete with them, particularly in the sushi on the go category, then you're forever going to be compared to the founders and creators of a sushi rito. And so they competed on a dimension called different as opposed to what most entrepreneurs do. Most of us do in our career with our own individual careers. We try to be the best accountant in town, the best salesperson in town. These folks are, are a different kind of sushi restaurant. And that difference is the difference that makes all the difference. Mm, well, I don't know if I want to ask you more about the book or more about sushi Rito. Cause I could eat, I could eat. <laughs> <laughs> Did, have I know you this had, conversation does tend to make you hungry. Have you had a sushi Rito yet or not yet? No, I still haven't had a sushi Rito because my wife ate it all herself. Wow understandably. <laughs> I, so I, lo- I love that. I love that. It's a, it's a great example. You know, I, uh, Christopher, as I, as I got to know you over the last few years, you know, I've, I've really wrestled with this myself personally, how to, how to position myself as different. You know, one of the things that, uh, that's been, that's been fascinating is not only hearing the examples that you have, and, and I, knowing you, your book's littered with examples, but also hear, having learned from you and heard from you talking about uh, some of the things that you need to do as an entrepreneur to be different. Uh, for example, uh, you have to take ownership over how people talk about and think about you. Otherwise, as you've said, you will be positioned. Or another example would be one of the ideas that we learned from you that actually sat on our wall on a post-it for several months, I don't know why it's not there. I think the sticky just ran out <clears throat> or maybe we didn't like the idea anymore, but it was, it was the idea that you've got to get really clear. And I'd love if there's anything you want to say about this, about mo- what are you moving from and towards the Frodo's, right? And uh, that was really helpful for us at FLI to realize that, okay, our brand of whatever it is we do we need to have a point of view. We need to be able to articulate that this is what everybody else is doing or was doing, but what we're doing is moving from that towards this. And that was really helpful, that concept for us. Anything you can uh, add to that or say just to kind of bring that to light? Yeah, of course. I think a trap that a lot of us fall into is um, we, we, we compete based on the current paradigm, the game, the way it's, it's laid out. Legends don't do that. They take the world from the way it is and they educate the world about how they want it to be. And when enough people see things the way you do, then bam, big time success can happen at scale. And and in specific, it's around the way the innovator, the way the category designer, um, the way that I love this term, the niche downer, (laughs) um, Uh, the way that person sees the world and particularly a problem and therefore the solution. And so when enough people see the problem the way you do, they're going to demand the solution. And there's ways to do this, you know, at, at, if you're trying to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, and there's ways to do this, if you're trying to be, you know, a legendary realtor, and you know, I talk about any kind of level examples you want, but the big thing is to market the problem, not the solution. Mm, talk about that. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a simple example from the, the big time tech world, and then we can look at a smaller example. 
one of the greatest category designers in the tech world is this guy named Mark Benioff, who's the founder of Salesforce.com. And for 20 years, he's been pounding the drum saying no software, no software, no software. And Benioff, more than anybody, is responsible for the popularity of this mega niche, this mega category called the cloud. Mm. And by saying no software, what he was really saying was the traditional approach, the from of how the software industry used to work was all bad and wrong. And you needed to move to this model of the cloud and, and unpack it at whatever level of detail you like. But over time, at first, it sounds crazy. You're like, what? You want you want me to put my data in this scary thing called the cloud? It's not in my, my own servers. It's not in my data center. It's what, what, Why would I do that, right? And over time, people get the argument around the problem, and therefore, they buy into the solution. You know, so, so, so that's at one level. I'll give you, this, this is probably my favorite example in the new book. And this, to me, is probably the most inspiring entrepreneurial story I've ever heard. So there's a father and son entrepreneur team named um, Mark, Mark's the dad, and John, the son, Cronin. And they're in, uh, they're in the New York area. And Mark's had an entrepreneurial career. Uh, the dad and the son, John, when he graduates high school, Mark says to him, well, you know, what, what do you want to do now, son? And he says, well, I want to start a business with you, dad. And I say, okay, well, what kind of business do you want to start? And they brainstorm some ideas. But the idea that John ultimately comes up with, I guess he's always been a creative guy, always liked colorful things. And in particular, always loved bright, colorful, zany socks. So in classic niche down form, they start a company called John's crazy socks. And the problem they solve is boring socks. <laughs> I, didn't and know, they event- I didn't even know that was a problem. Well, there you go, right? And but so sometimes is. we're, it, well, why would you want a white pair of socks? Or why would you want just a pair of blue socks? Nobody wants to just wear, you don't want, you don't want to have boring socks now, do you, Mr. Berghoff? Not anymore. So why not get some crazy socks? So they set up, you know, on this mission to evangelize this problem called boring socks. And the solution is colorful, crazy socks. The other part of the story I'm not telling you, which sort of speaks to this idea of follow your different. And in particular, sometimes being different can feel like a real liability because we don't fit in. Mm. And how do you take what maybe could feel like a liability and turn it into a massive asset? And, and in this case, to build a successful business around. And these, these folks are maybe a year and a half in roughly. Well, guess what? John Cronin, the son, has Down syndrome, and he's the face of the business because he's got a big smiling face. Their mission as a business, according to John and Mark, are to spread happiness through socks and and through any other mechanism, by the way. And um, they have been legendary about evangelizing the power of crazy socks to make people happy, so much so they sent some socks to former president um, George H.W. Bush. And he loved the socks so much. They have a pair of socks, John, with um, a books and stuff on them. Yeah. And it turns out Barbara Bush's, uh, one of her big things, her big focus areas in life was literacy. And so George H.W. Bush wore John's socks to her funeral in honor of her. Wow. And John's Crazy Socks has subsequently taken that sock design, and now all the profits from those socks go to her literacy foundation. And so 
John's Crazy Socks to me is an amazing example of uh, defining a problem that most people didn't realize they had, which is, hey, man, your socks are boring. And you go, well, yeah, it is. I got a, I got a drawer full of blue socks, right? Or white or whatever you got, right? And okay, so we fix that problem. And then evangelizing that and taking, in this case, John's different, his creativity, his Down syndrome, things that you might have seen as a negative and turning it into a positive and doing some very clever marketing to build awareness, right? And so the combination of a powerful niche down with focusing on what makes us different, evangelizing that difference, you know, in this case, they, they're about a year and a half old. They're hugely, they're, you know, they're growing really quickly. They've been on, they've won all these awards. They're, you know, been on all these hot lists and all this stuff. And they're really making a powerful go of it. And it's incredibly inspiring. That is, that's a, uh, that's an incredible story. It, what's, what's interesting is as soon as you mentioned for the first time that it was crazy socks, you know, I don't know if there's relevance to your story and me sharing this, but as soon as you said that, it actually immediately reminded me of two or three people who in totally random situations, uh, shared with me that they had crazy socks. Like one of them was seven years ago. I was doing a leadership training for the judiciary branch, but you can't make this up, the judiciary <laughs> branch of the Trinidad uh, government, right? Which is a whole other crazy story in and of itself. And it's this very serious, these were wonderful people, by the way. We had in the room the chief justice and all the chief magistrates and all these other long titles that I could, I had to say them every time I said somebody's name. And it was a fascinating environment to be in. And at one of the breaks, one of the chief magistrates, your honor, comes up to me and he says, I just want you to see that even though we all have to behave a certain way, I am wearing, and I don't know that he said crazy socks, but I'm just going to say my crazy socks. And he showed me his crazy socks. So as soon as you shared the story, it actually reminded me. Uh, and there's another one I thought of too, of people who've actually gone out of their way to show me their crazy socks. So there is a whole... There's a whole movement of people that want to wear these crazy socks, but how, yeah, how easy to overlook that. Yeah. And, and what a great example of a unexploited niche that tied to something that John was, uh, you know, uniquely passionate and interested in, and had uh, a lot of creativity around. And, and at the same time, they're claiming that niche that if you want boring white socks, don't go to johnscrazysocks.com. But if you want crazy socks, <laughs> that's where you go. What um, does it take courage to do this? I, I think about at FLI, Christopher, and you know, we uh, as, as we have wrestled with how we uh, position ourselves and how we define our category. You know, one one of the things I find myself from time to time thinking is just part of my internal dialogue is, you know, how do I know if I'm choosing the right different? I don't know if that's a common struggle, but a lot of times I, I think about things like that. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. It, it, it takes a tremendous amount of courage because by definition, there's no evidence for a new category. So whether you're Henry Ford saying, I'm going to bring, he called his new category at the time, the horseless carriage to the world, or whether you're Mark and John Cronin, there's no evidence for it. Can I tell you another story about this one that I absolutely love? Yeah, of course. The creator entrepreneur's name is Debbie Sterling. She's the founder of a company called Goldie, 
blocks, and they've been incredibly successful. And she's a Stanford graduate in engineering, and she came out of school, and she realized there were no uh, what, what are now called STEM Toys for Girls, and STEM is an acronym that stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. So at the time, there were, you know, Meccano sets and Legos and other things. I'm not an expert on toys, but there were these sorts of toys, but they were very kind of male slash boy oriented. And she said, well, look, where where are the STEM toys for girls? Mm. There weren't any. So like all legendary entrepreneurs, when they discover a problem, when they discover a missing and they say, why isn't there X or why isn't it the way I want it to be? You know, to go back to those from twos, John, right? Well, it is this way. That's the from. I want it to be a different way. That's the two, right? So she has that kind of a moment. So she decides she wants to start this company. Well, guess what? Nobody will fund her. The people in the toy industry say, oh, this is a nice idea, maybe a charity or whatever. And they kind of give her a very placating, almost the way she describes it. If you, if you read her interviews and stuff, as we did researching her, they almost placate her. She goes to Silicon Valley. She asks all the leading VCs. She doesn't get accepted by Y Combinator or any of that. Just as a side note, guess what percentage of venture-backed technology startups in Silicon Valley are founded by women? Not enough? Yeah, way not enough. 2%. So she gets rejected by all these people. And so she says, F it. I'm going to go for it anyway. She believes so strongly. So to get to your question, you know, there's this place where you believe so much in the problem you're solving. The, the, my friend Eddie Yoon, who wrote a great book called Super Com- Consumers, he's one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, he's, he's sort of the growth consultant to the stars. Um, he makes a distinction that, that I've glommed onto called the difference between being a missionary and a mercenary. Mm. And most people in business, most people in life uh, are more mercenary oriented. And the truth is, if you are getting paid to do something and that's your primary motivation, look, I'm a big fan of getting paid, don't get me wrong. But if that's your primary motivation, there will come a point in time where most mercenaries will tap out. If you're truly on a mission, you will crawl through burning glass. Mm. And so Debbie Sterling's a missionary. So she refuses to give up. She creates a little prototype and a little booklet. She puts that stuff up on, um, I forget which site it is, but you know, one of the, one of the kind of social crowdfunding type sites. Yeah. She raises almost $300,000. Anyway, long story longer. Goldie Blocks is a huge success today. She's an icon of, of a category designer. It's a classic example of a niche down. There were hundreds of toy companies, but she's the first to design a niche of STEM toys for girls. That's what she calls it. And guess what? She is so much on this mission and she's enrolled other people in this mission. This is what legendary category de- designers do. They build an ecosystem of people who get into the mission with them, get that sign up to the mission, right? Cause, cause I don't know about you. I hear this thing about STEM toys for girls and I, I want to sign up to help. Right. And so anyway, she partners with the Girl Scouts of America, John. Hmm. And today there are STEM badges for Girl Scouts to begin to try to encourage and support and stimulate uh, young ladies, young girls who want to get into science, technology, engineering, and math. And that is a classic example of a niche down because Debbie discovers a problem. 
She sees it in a unique way from a unique perspective, in this case, a female perspective. The whole industry disagrees with her, a lot of whom, with no disrespect to uh, uh, you know, fellow penis owners, don't see it. And she fights forward. She fights con- and continues to fight forward. And so she, to get back to your question, it takes courage to be legendary. You have to be willing to take that leap around that missionary vision that you have around solving that problem. You have to be willing to hear, you know, potentially thousands of no's over time. And every great success is a giant failure up until the minute it tips, right? (laughs) And now Debbie's the one laughing. Yeah, that's a, wow. That is a great story. And, uh, you know, that, that, that also brings us back around to, or brings, brings me back to remembering, cause I can't help as I hear that story that I just filter my own business through the, the lens of those lessons. And it reminds me to not get hung up on the brand, right? Or, and I, and I think I've heard you say this, the category makes the brand, not the other way around. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is what people get confused about. Yeah. Help me with what that means. Because I think I understand it. And I think I realize, especially when you said the point about building an ecosystem of people who want to get into the mission, that that sounds like a smart move right there. But but as soon as you said that, it made me think, oh man, it's probably easier to get them into the mission than behind some brand if they don't understand the mission. Well, yeah. And nobody wants to be, nobody cares about a brand. They care about the mission, right? They care about uh, what you stand for. And specifically, the reason the category makes the brand. Look, if I, if I say to you, hey, John, could you pick up some scotch on the way home? What's likely your next question? Yeah, what kind? Right. And so first, there's category, scotch. You understand what that is. And then brand comes second, right? Yeah. If I say to you, hey, could you just pick up some booze? What are you likely to say? Yeah, I don't know. What kind? And when you say what kind, what you're asking is what category? category. And so that's how the human brain works. Category first, brand second. And so, and it's the category that makes the brand. Here's, a, here's an example from the big E entrepreneur world. Uh, Google in most big ding dong brand assessment awards and all that is now considered to be one of the top 10 brands in the world, right up there with Coke and Nike, et cetera, right? Well, when they take that brand and they apply it to the office productivity application space and they create a new product called Google Plus that competes against the entrenched category king, which in this case is Microsoft Office. Microsoft Office is roughly 250 bucks a year to subscribe to, right? Maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's 150, whatever it is. It's some, somewhere in that range. Yep. Google, uh, Google uh, Docs, excuse me, Google Docs is free. And most people in the tech world say Google Docs is a, quote, better product than Microsoft Office. So here we have a free product that most people say is better. Guess what percent market share Microsoft has? A whole lot more. IDC says they're still over 90%. Yeah. And so... When you have one of the top 10 brands in the world and you move outside your core category and you apply that brand to a whole new niche, mm. but you don't, you don't create a new one, you just compete for sharing an existing one, you get crushed. Mm. So my point is what makes Google Google is they got the, they, they won in the category of search. 
And when they try to take their brand and put it into different categories, they lose. I'll give you a simpler example. Uh, I love this one. There are these two gals named Dina Tripp and Debbie Schwetz. And uh, over a decade ago, they decide they want to create a bakery. Now, if, if you and I were going to start a bakery, what most people do is they say, hey, let's start a bakery and we're going to win by having a great location and, and, and great service. And, and we bake really good cakes or, or pies or what we bake really great, you know, stuff. Great bakers. Greatbakers.com, right? Or John and Chris's fantastic bakery, right? And we're just, we're going to win that way. Well, most of those businesses fail. Not Dean and Debbie. They start a franchise chain of bakeries. And today there are over 250 of them. You know why? They pulled a niche down. They are the category queens of a category called Bunt Cake Bakeries. And they tied their brand to their niche. So guess what the bakery is called? You ready for this? Nothing Bunt Cakes. <laughs> <laughs> and they dominate the Bunt Cake Bakery space. And they're unique. They stand alone. And so if you want a Bunt Cake, you go there. And if you think Bunt Cakes are awesome, you're going to go to Nothing Bunt Cake. If you think Bunt Cakes are terrible, you're not going to go there. They force you to make a choice. Hey, John, do you want bunt cakes? Okay, great. We should go there. They're the specialist. Oh, you don't feel like a bunt cake? Well, don't go there because they're nothing bunt cakes. And so it's, it's a very simple idea, whether it's Google at the high end, not understanding that the category makes their brand, or Debbie and Dina understanding that they niche down. They designed a category. There was no, look, you could have hired a hundred management consultants from McKinsey wearing khaki pants and bad shirts and outfits and paid them $10 million to do a study and say, you know, should we, or shouldn't we do a bunt cake chain? Chances are they'd say no. <laughs> That's so great. I don't even know. I don't even know if I know what a bunt cake is. It's, and I'll get killed for this, but it's, it's a circular. It's imagine a cake that was sort of like a giant donut. There's a hole in the middle of it. And yeah. there, there are these little, I don't know what to call them. They're these little archy things in the middle. So like it, it, it's sort of, I don't, I'm going to get killed by somebody, I'm sure. But there, yeah. it has a very, uh, the circle has a very, there's like part of it that comes up and you buy these cake mold things and, and it's got the hole in the middle and all that. And anyway, they're great. And, it, and it's fun because you sort of drip the icing on the top of it. So it sort of slides down the side. And so it's a whole other kind of an icing experience. I don't know. I'm probably not doing bunt cakes. Uh, too nothing, much justice, but nothing uh, bunt cakes. Nothing bunt. Nothing cake. bunt cakes for us from now on. Uh, There's one in my neighborhood. They opened up here uh, about a year or so ago. Oh well, you, you, what you got to do is go leave the house, grab a sushi rito and a bunt cake, and uh, you got a feast. You got a picnic. And I'm, I'm good to go. Right on the beach. You know, one of the one of the segments or groups that I think a lot about Christopher all the time when I think about what you're bringing to the world is, uh, and I'm just going to use some very big labels here, authors and coaches. And I, so I'd love your opinion on this. And, and I'll share mine, I guess, the highly abbreviated version. You know, Hal and I, we happen to serve quite a few folks that are either coaches, authors, or aspiring to be an author or a coach. And, um, you know, those are really tricky spaces, depending on what someone's goals are. I mean, if you just want to be a coach or an author, any anybody there's no barrier anybody could do that but if you want to thrive those are very crowded spaces 
And um, I often find myself when I'm coaching somebody in one of our mastermind groups who wants to be a coach, there's an irony to all that, trying to encourage them to consider, uh, not that they shouldn't be a coach, but to, to run the other direction of anything that sounds anything like everybody else who's a coach, which can be hard to do because there's a million of them. Love any thoughts right. you have on that whole space because I, I feel like, you know, if one more person writes another book that at least is positioned to be just another book on another topic, and I feel like there's some good advice that sometimes gets poorly filtered, which is, well, if there are a lot of books on leadership, then that's a sign that people will buy more. But I think people take that the wrong way and then they position it as just another book on leadership and then they run into trouble or they can't figure out why it's so hard to grow their business. I'd love your take on this topic. Yeah, uh, I love this topic. First of all, we need to understand that category queens and kings rule. And so part of the analysis we did for Niche Down, we did a whole bunch for Play Bigger as well. We looked at the economics associated with this. And if you look at Eddie Yoon's work, by way of example, he says that 80% of the economics go to the, the category king or queen. So if you look at any given niche, a vast majority of the economics go to the leader. And I'll give you the very simple short course on why that is. You and I as human beings actually don't want choice, John. Mm. And we live in a world where there's so many options and so many products and so many apps for our phone. And so, you know, it's like, Whenever there's all these things to choose from, we just shut down and don't make a decision. And so um, we only buy things when the right answer becomes clear. When A, we identify with the problem, and B, the right solution is very, very clear. And if there's confusion around the solution, and maybe we need to read 1,400 consumer reports and talk to people, you know, oh, we F it, we'll just go do something else, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of why one company tends to get the vast majority of economics, whether that's one local pizza parlor who really crushes it because they're highly differentiated in their niche or whether that's Facebook and everybody in between. So now to get to your question, how is a legendary example of how to do this as a coach, author, consultant? And, uh, you know, look, he says that he wrote the forward to niche down. He says it in the forward when he starts off as a coach, as a speaker, as an author, he's undifferentiated. He's a great young speaker, coach, author. He's a handsome young guy. He's wonderful in front of the room. He's, he, he's got good natural writing skills, which he's honing and all these things. But he's one of a zillion good speaker, coacher, coach, coacher, yeah, coacher, writer type guys. Yep. His niche down was the miracle morning. When he creates the miracle morning, what he's really doing is evangelizing a different, and I use that word on purpose, problem. So at the time he's competing with everyone else. He's talking about achieve your goals and motivation and all the good stuff, but he sounds like almost everybody else. When the minute he begins to say, Hey, listen, wake up an hour early and what you do with that first hour of the day influences your entire day. And if you really are thoughtful about getting that first hour to be as powerful as possible for you, then you're going to have more powerful, more effective, more enjoyable, more live days. And if you don't, then you won't. And yeah. of course, if you change that first hour, you change your day. And if you change your day, you change your life. And so that, you know, I would call it huge insight. Some people might say it's just a little wrinkle. Depends on what your definition of is, is. but however you want to think about it, 
that was a niche down. He took all the things that he was learning around how to design a legendary life that he was trying to teach others. And he focused it on how do I get the first hour of the day to be super powerful? Because I know that influences the rest of my day. And, you know, he learned that, you know, better than me. He learned that from how he dug his way out from almost dying in the car accident and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. So the minute he writes the miracle morning, he goes from being a completely generic, Hey, go for it. Follow your goals. Say your affirmation, whatever, all the other speakers in the world to now he becomes known for a niche that he owns. He's the miracle morning guy. He's created a whole new category of the way you construct your day to construct your life. And the minute that tips at any kind of scale, I think he says once he got to around 2000 or so people that were sort of beginning to get into this idea of the miracle morning, then it catches. And now he's not just another great speaker author guy. He's the miracle morning guy. And that being different, his different made the difference. And so for other coaches and speakers and, and that whole crew, you know, this is a world that I've only really entered into since I, you know, my first book came out two years ago. I didn't know anything about podcasting. It's a whole new world for me too. The people who are successful in the world of speaking, podcasting, coaching, et cetera, authoring are the people who become known for a niche that they own and, and how created a niche around the idea that the first hour of the day matters and bang. And so I would encourage people to think about what makes you different, what problem are you solving, and how do you evangelize the problem as opposed to just screaming, hey, I'm a good speaker and, you know, do your affirmations and <laughs> do your burpees or, or brush your teeth or take a poop or whatever, <laughs> you know, find out what makes you different. And in particular, what's the problem you solve and why does that problem matter? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I love that you used Hal as an example. And, uh, you know, what's, what's interesting is as I get to hear you sharing his example, uh, I get to reflect back on, you know, having been there since way before there was a miracle morning. And it actually reinforces, Christopher, one of your points about personal branding. Because before the miracle morning, Hal was Yo Pal Hal. And if you can go find, if you can dig through the archives and find the old websites, you know, his brand was, uh, and he'd, he'd be so happy that I'm out there telling people this. His brand was, uh, something like America's success coach, right? And, and he and I used to make fun of his own brand because we both realized he, we just didn't understand any other way other than you just make stuff up and say it. But what's interesting is, you know, he is a person. He didn't change, but he gave, like you said, he gave people so much clarity on this problem and solution about how they start their day. And, and to Hal's credit, I do want to say this. Like one of the things about Hal, it's maybe one of the most underappreciated qualities of his is he's one of the hardest working people I've ever met. And I, so I, I've watched firsthand the energy that he has put into evangelizing the concept of the miracle morning. Not the Hal Elrod brand, but the concept of the Miracle Morning, and and it's why today, you know, and it's the you know craziest of all crazy stories that when he was dealt the hand he was dealt with last year with cancer, he basically took the year off and and his business still thrived because you know fortunately he uh, 
he put all that work in and it kept growing without him, which is in and of itself, you know, says a lot about uh, what he built. Well, and to your point, he got, and this is something that uh, intuitive category designers like Hal do, he created an, an ecosystem. That's a big highfalutin word. But what he really did was he was a missionary, not a mercenary. He believed in the miracle morning because it, it helped transform, if not save his own life after he was, you know, pronounced dead a couple times. And of course, he's had to use it now from the, from the horrible getting hit by a drunk driver. He had to use it again when the recession almost wiped him out. And God bless him. He's had to use the, the techniques of the miracle morning again to overcome one of the spookiest, scariest, life threatening kinds of cancers. And he's now cancer free. And so life keeps testing the miracle morning theories and concepts and how keeps proving that, you know, he's the, he's the energizer bunny of the miracle morning uh, practices. But, but the point being, he was undifferentiated when he was your pal, Hal, America's blah, blah, yada, yada. That's totally forgettable. Yeah. The minute he says, no, no, I'm, well, you know, what kind of motivational speaker are you? What what kind of uh, self-help writer are you, Hal? I'm the miracle morning guy. Huh? What's a miracle morning? Well, I discovered this problem, which is most people don't think very much about what they do when they get up or when they get up and they just get up, they have a cup of coffee and they kind of, you know, turn on the TV, watch the news, want to kill themselves and get on with their day. <laughs> and, and, and I discovered something else. And then he, and then he rolls his, if you will, point of view about why that first morning matters and how to structure that first morning around the savers and all the good stuff. And, people start nodding their heads and all of a sudden what he's doing is he's enrolling them in his mission and they become part of the ecosystem and to your point he could take a year off in this case not on purpose but to deal with a very serious spooky health situation in his life and his business not only goes goes but and you know better than me but i was talking to Hal just the other day it grew without him doing anything yeah, because so many other people were on the mission, right? Mm-hmm. And so, legendary category does—it's like Picasso is the evangelist for Cubism. It's like um, Bob Marley is the evangelist for reggae. And by evangelizing reggae, if you if you believe what he says about reggae, then you get stoked about his music. And legendary category designers make the category big for everybody, right? They they evangelize the idea around the problem and the solution. Um, you know, one of the, we feature Jack O'Neill, the, the inventor of the surf wetsuit, um, in, in the book. And he trademarked the term in the sixties, John surf shop that didn't exist, right? Cause surfing was a new category, a new industry that was emerging. And he was at the forefront of it. He never sued anybody for using the term surf shop because he understood that there, it, there needed to be more surf shops, right? He was the evangelist for surfing. He was the evangelist for the surf shop and he was absolutely the evangelist for surfing in cold water. It's like, Hey, surfing in cold water problem, right? Yeah. Why? Cold. Can't surf that long. Ha ha solution. Right. And he becomes one of the most legendary guys, you know, in California history and in surf history so much so that when he died last year, you know, when surfers die, we do this funeral at sea called a paddle out. And the largest paddle out on record, I think, was five or 800 people, something like that. Over 2,500 people, myself included, paddled out for Jack last summer. Wow. wow. And that's not just because he was an entrepreneur, right? That's because he was somebody who made a contribution to the world. He made 
surfing go to a whole other place. He to our point earlier, he took he took how how it was from where it was to where he wanted to be, which is to make surfing available to way more people, right? Yeah. And he was the evangelist for surfing, and he didn't ever sue anybody for using the term surf shop because he wanted to grow it for everybody, right? Yeah. And that's what Hal has done. And, and, and you know, in the in the coaching world, another one of my favorites as a guy. Do you know Joe Sanic by chance? Practice yeah. of the practice. I, uh, Joe Sanic. I, I think I may have just met Joe at a TED event in Traverse City. If not, I met someone with a very similar name. And the guy I met was a great guy. <laughs> well, this guy, if it's the same guy, uh, wonderful guy, speaker, coach type guy. He yeah. starts off as a, um, uh, I think he was like a, you know, a healthcare counselor, you know, like a, I don't know much about this world, but you know, you, you, you go, t- you want to go get some counseling, right? So he was one yeah. of those kinds of people, right? And uh, when he started off as a counselor, he'd gotten himself educated and certified and all that stuff, but he was trying to figure out how to grow his practice because, you know, he didn't get taught much about that. He got taught how to be a good counselor. Uh, you know, therapist, et cetera. And so he started to look for help. And at the time, this was, you know, many years ago now, he couldn't find a lot of uh, content from thought leaders on how to build a really good counseling practice. Mm -hmm. So he started learning by trial and error and this and that. And then he started sharing a little bit about what he learned. Well, before you know it, you know, he's blogging and he's podcasting and he's doing all the stuff. He starts a podcast called The Practice of the Practice. And he's, I don't forget how many years he's been doing it, but he's got over a million downloads now. Wow. And he is, the. if you're somebody that has a counseling practice, you subscribe to Joe's teachings. And he's just a regular guy trying to, you know, in that field, trying to give back. But by sharing his learnings on the business side of how to be a good practitioner, so to speak, he's got this whole other business now where he's like the guru to people with, uh, counseling practices. That's a classic niche down. It's, and it's also a classic example, same as how both Joe and Hal share this as well in common, which is they also use the technology to scale the ideas, right? Mm-hmm. How to use Amazon to get your books out, how to use podcasts to get your get ideas out, um, webinars, you know, all this good stuff. Today, you know, you and Hal run a media empire from your laptops. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. You, when, you know, when, when you give the, uh, when we talk about how, one of the things I'm reminded of is um, hey, I've got several friends who are also entrepreneurs who, you know, one of the debates that we've had is, and I feel like there, there could be others who could, who could look at Hal's story and might say something like, well, I don't really care if I'm in 88 countries and I'm that big or I don't I don't need to scale up and you know, I'd love your opinion on this Christopher and I don't know that I've formulated mine but since I'm asking, you know, I'm happy to share that I feel like there are are people I know who are entrepreneurs in different spaces who will sometimes say that they're comfortable with the business being of a certain size. And, and maybe they're right or justified in, in their intent behind that. But in my own mind, and by the way, I'm not one of those because I, I feel the mission I'm on has a enormous potential and I need to work uh, joyfully to fulfill that. But when I, when I talk to some of these friends of mine, and there's a couple I'm thinking of who 
I see how comfortable they are and, and they somehow rationalize, well, I don't need to be as big as Hal. There's a part of me that thinks that same rationale is stopping them from making some of the decisions. It's just going to help them even to survive because somebody else is going to come into their space and not necessarily because it's all about size, but because they realize I need to dominate in this space. Otherwise I become irrelevant. I, j- I wonder about folks who are having that internal conversation. Does that make sense what I'm raising? Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And getting clear on who you are and what your true north is, I think if you tie your point of view to that, it it, it, it will help govern it. Let me share, there's a story in my mind. Uh, this entrepreneur came on Legends and Losers. We feature in the book. She's somebody I think is incredibly inspiring. Uh, her name is Anne Morehauser, and she's the founder of an outfit um, here in the Santa Cruz area called Annie Glass. And she starts off as a real artisan, as a true artist, learning how to, and you're, you're going to have to excuse me, I don't know any of the technical carbidinulation, deconfibrillation of how you make high-end handcrafted pieces of art from glass. But she's, she studies under a, a master and she learns that she becomes obsessed with it very early on. And she starts to build her business. And her designs are so beautiful that two things happen. One, she gets knocked off all the time. So mass producers in foreign countries will take a design that her and her team handcrafts and hand makes. She hand makes everything from here in the Santa Cruz, uh, Monterey Bay area to this day. And she's in all the super ding dong restaurants, all the super ding. You know, she creates pieces of art that go in the dishwasher, right? that are used in restaurants, that are used in hotels. She's in, her work is in the Smithsonian, right? Her work is in the, the, the folks at Corning have a glass museum, right? She's trumpeted as like a pioneer glass artist entrepreneur at the Corning Glass Museum. She's that kind in the art design world. She's like completely a, a goddess, right? And what happens over time is People say to her, hey, you know, you should get into mass production. You should do offshore production, making everything by hand in California. That's really freaking dumb. And oh, by the way, you know, just like if you think about any high-end fashion design kind of business, we should take this design for this new plate or whatever, Annie, and we should like, we should license it so that we can like sell beach towels and, and you know, plastic knick-knacky crapola things with it and stuff. And she's like, NFW. We're not doing any of that stuff. She is, she is the queen of the niche. And she thinks that over diversification can kill a lot of businesses. And so she has stayed true to that niche, John handcrafted, beautiful design at scale, every piece made by hand in California. So Mm -hmm. when the four seasons or Bloomingdale's or Neiman Marcus or, or, or a high end restaurant, uh, buys her products, handmade, beautiful, and it goes in the dishwasher. And everybody else tried to tries to knock her off. And more importantly, everybody told her to go to offshore manufacturing and to license her designs to all these other things. She said no. She said no to money in the short term mm-hmm. to stay true to her craft, her vision, and the real mission that she was on. And she's been the category queen of handcrafted glassware in America for over 30 years. Nobody can touch her. She owns the niche that she designed. That's awesome. 
I, I, I just trying to imagine what her handcrafted glassware looks like now. Now I got to go look. Well, if you go to AnnieGlass.com, you can see lots of it. It's uh, very, very beautiful. And you can order some for your family if you want. I'm going to chat. You know, I would look while we're talking, but our our internet, I don't know if it's like the heat outside slows it down. I try and search things while we're talking on here and all of a sudden it screws it all up. Is it is it Putin? I, I, I presume yes. <laughs> I just presume whenever anything's going wrong, it's Putin. <laughs> it's Putin. <laughs> or as we call him around here, Pooty. Uh, Pooty. Hey, uh, Chris, for one of my favorite questions that I learned from you, is there anything else? Yeah, well, there's lots of, is there anything else? It is my favorite question. I think the big thing for me, John, is... And, you know, my buddy, my buddy, Bill Walton, my new buddy, Bill Walton, helped me understand this. You know, he's been the greatest, most random, awesome, tastic uh, gift that I could have imagined to have this seven foot NBA Hall of Famer in my life. It's been your, so fun. Your episode with him was one of a kind. Oh, it's I, it's a, it's a trip and a half, isn't it? <laughs> I've never heard so little from you, but that was OK. <laughs> well, you know, at the beginning of Legends and Losers, we say strap yourself in. And when you got Bill Walton. You double just, strap, double strap, and you're you're going to go from Grateful Dead stories to what it's like to win the NBA championship and his mother and ev- everything in between. And we're going to talk about Proteas or Proteas, depending on your religious beliefs and how to say that flower's name. Or yeah, you're just going to have a an unbelievable magical mystery tour, and, and you can just you could just ask one question and let them roll. <laughs> it was awesome, but you know he he makes these incredible comments about how tough life can be and how life can beat us up and how life can get us down and how, how people say no to us. And he makes this comment of, I want to live in a world of yes. And I don't want to hear excuses. I want to hear a plan for going forward. And look, Kermit the Frog said it, right? It's not easy being green. It can be hard to follow your different. It can be hard if particularly if you're someone who feels like a misfit to have that, you know, as we talked about earlier, that courage to, to stand out in a world that makes us the same. But my dream is that we live in a world where more people understand that being better is incremental and it's what makes us different that makes the difference and that more people follow that different. And that's, that's really, you know, why I do this work. And that's really my big dream for people is that they follow their different, that they, they have the cur- the courage to be their original self. Christopher. Uh, buddy, thank you for being yourself. Niche down. When's it coming out? Where do we find it? I know there will be out niche down book.com niche down book.com. So if you're watching, if you're listening or consuming this in some other format, niche down.com, check it niche out. Niche down book.com <laughs> niche down book. Niche down book.com. Hey, I appreciate you, buddy. Uh, I can't wait to see you again. Thanks, John. As corny as it sounds. I love you. And uh, I know Hal's listening. Hal, uh, Heather, and I will be forever, ever grateful that a man of your stature, of your wisdom, of your awesomeness in over 72 languages (laughs) 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 was kind enough to write the foreword to our book. We love you, Hal. And we hope whatever you're doing right now, you're having a great time. Hal's a Korean bestseller. (laughs) Yeah, he's huge in Korea. He's huge. As he should be. As he should be. Uh, Love you too, buddy. On behalf of uh, the entire Miracle Morning Achieve Your Goals, uh, Hal Elradian community. 
Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Achieve Your Goals podcast and to get access to today's show notes, transcript, and exclusive content from Hal Elrod, visit halelrod.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Achieve Your Goals podcast. 